These days, there's almost no aspect of commerce that hasn't been radically transformed by technology. Uber lets you summon a privately driven car to show for you. Seamless lets you order takeout without ever speaking to a soul. And thanks to Airbnb, you can sleep in another person's bed. But the shift to having everything at your fingertips at the tap of an app hasn't been without its bumps. Ride-sharing apps have been blamed for worsening traffic congestion. Amazon has been accused of subjecting its warehouse workers to brutal working conditions. And Airbnb has been a source of great debate in places like New York City. To learn more about online marketplaces today, we sat down with Apostolos Philippus, an assistant professor of information systems at the Gabelli School of Business. I'm Patrick Verrill, and this is Fordham News. Talk to me about the study you published in May. Now, you found what would seem to be a happy medium for Airbnb, correct? Yes. Um, so platforms like Airbnb, HomeAway, and so on, they often face a, a critique that pertains to the externalities that guests impose on people living in the buildings. So what do I mean by that is that when you're an Airbnb host, people come into your building and maybe, you know, they're not familiar with, um, with the building space. They ask questions uh, on your neighbors. They have parties later on at night than long-term residents do and so on. So there's, there's some externalities that your neighbors have to face. This is a common critique of home sharing platforms. In my opinion, it's a real critique. So this is a problem that home sharing platforms do create. So in this paper with uh, John Horton, we um, were proposing a solution to this problem, and our solution is a very simple one. Our solution is that um, whether a building allows home sharing or not, should not be up to the tenant, to every individual tenant. It should not be up to the city, but it should instead be up to the building owner. And that might mean, of course, a, an owner that owns the entire building, or you know, uh, all the tenants of a building deciding by, by vote on the home sharing policy. So what this allows for is it allows people, it allows tenants to sort into buildings that either allow or do not allow for Airbnb according to their preferences. And we believe this is a good thing. And we saw in the paper that this uh, has many advantages because, for example, if you're a student and you absolutely want to monetize uh, to make some extra money off of your apartment once you're away. In the summer, for example, you got an internship for three months, but you still have to pay rent. This is a very, this is a very good way to, uh, to make some extra money on the side. On the other hand, if, you're, um, if you have a family, if you, for example, have two kids, and you absolutely do not want to be next to, you know, guests from all over the world that might be noisy, you don't know anything about, and so on, then you absolutely want to pick a building that does not allow for home sharing. So this allows for, as you said, a happy medium, um, allows people to go and live in buildings that either allow for home sharing or do not allow for home sharing. Do you know of any buildings that are like this, where they've already, either the owner of the building or the tenants in it have all come together and agreed upon this is what we're going to do, or this is what we're not going to do? Absolutely. So um, in New York City, in most co-ops, this was the modus operandi for a long time. So um, the buildings came together, the building tenants came together, and they voted on a home-sharing policy. Now, most of these co-ops ended up not allowing for Airbnb, uh, just because, you know, to be a 
to be a long-term uh, co-op owner in, uh, in New York City, well, you don't really care about that few extra money that you can make through Airbnb, right? So they, they preferred probably their privacy over um, that few extra money off of Airbnb. I believe the city of Sydney is now moving towards this direction um, and they're putting forth a legislation that will allow for buildings to decide whether they will allow for home sharing or not. So this would be something where the city itself is become sort of hands off on it and it just becomes every building for themselves. Fantastic. So this is a very good comment. The city becoming hands-off would be allowing every tenant to decide what to do with their building. So it's not hands-off. It's one level away from hands-off. Yeah. It, it tells tenants to decide on the building level, right? And this is what creates all of the positive effects of this policy. Now, you also study the kinds of rating systems that are used on, on sites like Airbnb, right? That's right. Um, Pretty much every online marketplace is using rating systems. Uber has a rating system. You have to rate your driver after every ride, and your driver rates you after every ride. Airbnb has a rating system. You have to rate your host after every state, and the host rates you as well, and so on. And these rating systems are extremely crucial to a well-functioning marketplace. The reason is that in these marketplaces, we're called to trust strangers every day with these transactions. You sleep into strangers' homes, you get into strangers' cars and ask them to drive you around, and ratings allow us to be more certain about the quality of that person. They also have a secondary effect. They also make sure that everybody's on their best behavior. If you know you're being rated, then you will treat an apartment, an Airbnb apartment better. If you know that you're being rated and you're an Airbnb host, you'll put more effort into providing a good experience. In this, in this research, um, we found that these rating systems suffer from a fundamental problem. And the problem is that, you know, have you ever taken an Uber ride? You probably have, right? Oh, yeah. So what was the rating of your driver? Did you remember? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it was fairly high. I, I, I wouldn't get in one with like one star. Let's put it that way. Okay, absolutely, you wouldn't, right? In fact, I would I would claim that you wouldn't get into anything with less than 4.5 out of 5 stars, right? If you notice the next time you take an Uber ride, you will see that your driver probably has a 4.7, 4.8. I mean, in most cases, even a 4.99 out of 5 star rating. So... In our paper that's called Reputation Inflation, we find that um, reputation systems are have this fundamental flaw. They tend to exhibit more inflated ratings over time. Ratings start off from, you know, relatively average of, let's say, three stars out of five, and boom, five years later, everybody has a five out of five. And that's pretty similar to what happens to some extent in the U.S. universities. If you go back to the 50s, the average GPA was probably like three out of four. And nowadays, the average GPA is something around 3.7, 3.8 out of four. Yeah. It manifests itself whenever we have a system where two peers, two people are rating one another. The reason that we give good ratings to people, inflated ratings, more, even more than we believe they deserve, is that we do not want to harm their future prospects. For example, if you're a professor, you do not want to harm the labor market prospects of a student by giving them a bad grade. 
if you are an Uber rider, you do not want a driver to not find jobs in the future because you gave them a bad rating. You don't want them to get into trouble because of your rating. So you kind of hold back from giving bad ratings unless something terrible happens, unless somebody's speeding, you know, 100 miles per hour or so. Or, or in the instance of my wife took a, a Uber to uh, LaGuardia recently and the driver informed her that he needed to stop and go to the bathroom and did so on the side of the highway because he had to pee really bad. <laughs> and to which she was thinking, why did you pick me up if you had to go to the bathroom? I don't know what rating she gave him, but I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure she docked him at least a, a, <laughs> a point. <laughs> we, maybe you'll be surprised. Maybe she just didn't give a bad rating. She gave a five out of five. Maybe she didn't even give a rating. I'll yeah. have to ask her now. I never <laughs> did find out what she gave him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you're saying, yeah, it's interesting about the professors, too. So it's not just because you might get a bad rating on ratemyprofessor.com or something. It's because you legitimately think if I really, if I give them this C minus, I'm going to I'm going to hurt them down the line. Yeah. Um, so this was a competing hypothesis in our study. Um, we're thinking maybe everybody's giving good ratings because what's happening here is that you don't want to receive a bad rating yourself. Right. Students rate professors as well. Drivers rate riders as well airbnb hosts rate airbnb guests as well but what we found is that even if you do not give any information about who gave you this rating as long as the rating has consequences for the person receiving the rating people will start inflating their scores. Oh, so it has nothing to do with the fact that you might get a bad rating yourself. It's not about this tit-for-tat behavior uh, as much as it is about you not wanting to hurt the other person, the person that you're rating. I guess that's kind of nice. We all sort of are not looking to hurt each other, right? Even if it, you're, over willing, you're willing to overlook this kind of, you know, something that went wrong in the house or in the car that you were in, ultimately you're like, I don't want to hurt this person. That, uh, but, but it would seem to also defeat, defeat the whole purpose as well of a rating system. So yeah, absolutely. It gives us a little bit of an optimistic outlook uh, for society. Um, we, re we still do not want to hurt other people through our ratings, but you, you put it very nicely. It kind of defeats the purpose. There is a fundamental trade-off there between how consequential a rating is and how willing people will be to give this rating. So I believe that in the future, we'll start moving to rating systems that ask very objective questions, not subjective ones, not rate your ride from one to five. They will ask, for example, you know, did the driver um, take a direct route? Yes, no. Was the house clean? Yes, no. We'll ask more objective questions and then we'll try to use these answers to help people improve rather than punish them without giving them the opportunity to improve. We're talking about the sharing economy, right? So sharing has become obviously super successful when it comes to cars and homes. So the natural question then is what's stopping us from sharing everything? That's a really good question, Patrick. So when the, when the sharing economy first came out, you had um, pandits trying to look into their crystal ball and they were predicting a world where we do not own anything anymore. We just rent and share 
whatever we need to consume, right? However, 10 years later, almost we do not really see this world. Um, we see maybe even more consumption taking place. So the sharing economy in another uh, paper with John Horan and Richard Seckhauser, um, we're trying to answer this question. What is going to happen because uh, due to this sharing economy? Will consumption expand or contract? And consumption, uh, we find, will always expand because of the sharing economy. There is something that uh, just remained there and used and we can now use. On the other hand, the question of whether ownership will expand or contract, that's a little bit harder to answer. Will fewer people own cars because of the sharing economy or will more people own cars? Uh, the answer there is much more ambiguous. So you can think about these two countervailing forces. On the one hand, maybe you do not need to own a car because you can get all the services on Uber or you can rent a car when you need it on all these platforms on one hand. On the other hand, maybe, you know, now you can own a car because um, now you can have the money to own a car because you can rent it out and make some money for yourself. Maybe now you can own an apartment that wouldn't make sense before because you can rent it out on Airbnb short term and make some money. So whether ownership expands or contracts, um, well, we'll find out in a few years. In light of all this, what's, what's your take on the gig economy? It has almost been 10 years since we started having this discussion about uh, online marketplaces, peer-to-peer markets, and so on. And in the beginning of all this phenomenon, we did have uh, two sides. One side said, you know, everything is going to be gig economy and sharing economy based. Another side that never believed anything, uh, never believed that it would amount to anything. Now, 10 years later, we see that it's part of our lives, right? We all know about Airbnb. We all know about Uber. We, uh, employers sometimes, find uh, freelancers online instead of hiring somebody full-time. It just makes sense for some activities. And it has benefited a lot of of, uh, different demographics. For example, students that want to make some back on the side they always used to be freelancers. Now they can get higher quality jobs easier as freelancer. Uh, moms that have, you know, little stretches of time, two, three hours when they want to work, they can find jobs that last uh, just two, three hours um, and so on. So I believe um, the sharing economy and the gig economy has unlocked a lot of value and it's going to be a part of our lives in the years to come, yes. Yes.